0: We'll get started. We'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for today. We thank you for our time to get together and study your word. We pray is that we look at Proverbs. We'd be a people who long to know what you've told us to be true and right so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we wouldn't follow after the waywardness of the culture, but that we would stay on the straight and narrow path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you recall last time, we were in Proverbs chapter 6, and the title of it, and I know this isn't October 15th, that was from last time, but the title of this is, Will We Live by Revelation or Desire? And that question is really designed to get us to think about how the culture lives. They live by their own desires. They live with their morality determined by the culture, by the newspaper clippings, by their own sinful desires rather than by the scriptures. And so that's what we started talking about last time. And I'm going to just give you a little review. We looked at this, these verses here last time, Proverbs 6, 20 through 22, where Solomon said, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Now let me just stop there for a moment. I'll pull up my pointer. Remember I had mentioned that the commandment from the father and the mother is assumed to be that from the scriptures. So assumed to be true from the writer of Proverbs perspective is that the teaching is coming from a godly perspective. In other words, we all know that there are mothers and fathers who you would not want to listen to. Uh, If there's a father or mother who's trying to teach you a new age uh, this or pantheistic that, that's not something to be listened to. But as Solomon is writing this and the Israelite is reading it, what's assumed to be true is that the mother and father are godly and they're taking their instruction from the scriptures. Notice this idea of binding them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. The idea of the commandment that comes from the scriptures is that it's not to be compartmentalized. It's not to be, well, I did that in Sunday school or I did that at church or I did that at synagogue, you know, in their day. Or in the case of Solomon, it would be a temple or what have you. But the idea is that you're to really live this out. And we see that in the very next verse. Notice it says, when you walk about, they will guide you. The term walk there is how we live. That's the idea. The term walk is also used in the New Testament for the way you live your life. Um, the passage that always comes to my mind is that Ephesians 2:8 through 10, for by grace we've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then remember it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The term walk there, peri pateo, peri has to do with a perimeter. The pateo is the idea about. You're literally perimetering about, right? So the idea is that you're walking it out. It's the way you live your life. That's the idea. And so the way to live your life is one in which the scriptures are constantly guiding you. They're what are informing the scriptures, are informing your conscience. So remember that conscience that you have is that inner referee that determines right and wrong, but it has to be informed by some source outside of itself. It is not itself infallible. It is fallible. Why? Because it's inside of a fallible human being. So when the conscience is informed by the scriptures, then we have a renewed mind. So that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 12:2. Do not be conformed to the image of the world. Why? Because they live as pagans, but be transformed, literally metamorphao." That's where we get our term metamorphosis. So think of an ugly caterpillar coming in to be a beautiful butterfly, through its metamorphosis. That's what we are to do through what? In Romans 12:2, the renewing of our mind. We have scripture, therefore, yeah, we think differently. Yes, Steve.
1: Um, I've heard even in church, not this church, that um, talking about at the end of the service, they were talking about if Jesus is speaking to your heart. I'm like, wait a second. He doesn't speak to my heart. He speaks to my conscience gets seared and it's spoken to through the word of God. So there is, I just wanted to point it out that we have to be careful with some of these things that are out there.
0: Yes, right. So you're right. You're talking about this subjective call to hear some voice. And what's funny is you can talk to a Mormon, and the Mormons are very big on talking about the burning in the bosom. In fact, I got to witness to, actually I was witnessing to Jehovah Witnesses, disregard the Mormon thing, but the same thing applies to Jehovah Witnesses. When you talk to them, they will talk about the feelings that they often have. For example, two Jehovah Witnesses show up probably three weeks ago and when I see them coming, I'll get really excited. Yeah. <laughs> but they showed up at my house, and I asked one of them, I said, how do you know you're one of the 144,000? Because remember, only the 144,000 go to heaven. And she says, well, I just feel it. And I said, well, how do you know your feelings are infallible? And she didn't have anything to say. And I think that's what you're getting at, Steve, is how, do you, how does any person know what they're hearing or feeling subjectively is in fact from God, and so that's why God gave us the Word. He gave us something that is objective. Absolutely, and so that's why we came to the next section. I was talking about the difference, if you recall, between cataphatic religion and apophatic. And remember, we started making that kind of a, a helpful category. I hope, hopefully, kata. Remember, is the preposition kata. It means according to. Phatic comes from phane in the in the Greek, means to speak. So if you have a cataphatic religion, it is according to what was spoken. It's according to the scriptures. So think you're going to the scripture, kata. It's according to the scripture. Apophatic means away from what was spoken. You're going away from the scripture. And so what Steve is rightly warning people is don't go subjective. That's going away from the scripture. Who knows what you're going to end up with? So I think that's really the warning that Solomon is giving. He's saying we have to have a cataphatic faith one that's according to the scriptures that's how we're to live not according to our desires not according to the norms of the standards the morality of the world and so that's what we saw in proverbs 6 23 through 24 he says for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light that's synonymous notice the commandment is synonymous with the teaching lamp and light are synonymous that's what's called synonymous parallelism so if we say that they're two different things, we're reading too much into that. That's a synonymously parallel statement. So notice the idea is that the word of God is what? It's light. It's light to us and it reproves for discipline are the way of life. To, for what? Here's the purpose statement. Verse 24, to keep you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Remember the evil woman is literally in the Hebrew, it's the other woman. The other woman. Implied what? The woman other than your wife. Now, if you, you can reverse this around if you're a woman and say this would be the other man. It's the man other than your husband. That would be the idea. Remember, the only location for sexual uh, union is between one man and one woman. How do we know that? Well, because it comes from the scriptures. Genesis 2.24, it's one man, one woman. So that has to be what defines the sexual union not our desires, not the morality of the world. Now, I also put up this verse, if you recall last time, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of his law. And so what I'm pointing out is that the secret things, think about that again as apophatic, going away from the scriptures. And it can be anything. It could be something that you invented in your mind, in your own imagination, It can be something that comes from culture, false religion. It's anything ultimately that God hasn't revealed. It's subjective. The secret things oftentimes you see them today in the occult, in fact, that's what occult means, the secret things, where people try to divine the future, what they should do, how they should live, and they do it as the pagans do, divorced from the scriptures, they're doing it apophatically. Not cataphatic, not according to the scriptures, but away from them. So we are to be the opposite. We are to live by the things that God has revealed. And so that's where we came up now to this passage. We didn't get to finish this, so let's get started here. 2 Chronicles 33, verse 6. I want to give you some examples from the Old Testament of sorcery and trying to live by secret things rather than by God's revelation to show you how this goes. Here, by the way, is the king of Judah, Manasseh, That's what this passage is about in 2 Chronicles 33.6. Remember, in 686 B.C., Hezekiah had died and Manasseh had come to the throne. And really, in every respect, Manasseh here is engaged in an apophatic religion. He's living away from the scriptures and he's living according to divination. Notice what it says he did. It says he made his sons pass through the fire... In the valley of Ben Hinnom. Let me just stop there for a moment. Does everyone know what it means to make your son pass through the fire? The idea is that this son is going to be a sacrifice to the god Moloch. And this Amorite god, what he demands is if you really want a bumper crop, you have to sacrifice your firstborn. So you sacrifice your firstborn son in order to appease Moloch, this wicked god. And then you're going to have a bumper crop. Well, who promised the Israelites at Mount Gerizim in Deuteronomy 28 that if they would trust in him, they could have a bumper crop? Yahweh did. Yahweh did. He gave the Israelites a promise. You trust in me, I'll give you a bumper crop. They say, no, I, I'm not so much going to do that. I'm not going to believe Deuteronomy 28. I'm going to go and worship Molech and sacrifice my only son. Very interesting, just a quick aside. Isn't it interesting that when the Lord ascends to Jerusalem through David, he wipes out the Jebusites? When the Israelites institute the sacrificial system in their temple, God doesn't require the death of the firstborn, but rather he takes a substitute. Remember who the substitutes were according to Numbers chapter 8? It was the Levites. The Levites are taken by the Lord, and then he gives them back as a gift so that they can produce the sacrificial system and atonement that he may dwell in the presence of the people. And ultimately what happens in the future, remember the sacrificial system is a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one who has the inheritance rights. And so ironically, God himself sacrificed his son, the firstborn, so that you and I can be made the firstborn. So the pagans make you sacrifice your firstborn. God sacrifices his firstborn. September eleventh, 2001, I'm flying. And as I'm flying, people that had my very job will never forget it, how eerie it was. I was flying home from International Falls and fellow airline pilots of different companies are getting their throats slit. Airplanes are crashing into buildings. Why? Because the religion... Of Islam says you die for your God our faith says no the scriptures say our God died for us so I'm driving on the crew bus we're going home dead silent we've just witnessed the worst terrorist attack on the United States and I everybody knew that I was probably gonna leave the industry because I was gonna be going into ministry because I couldn't stop preaching to people um, I think it probably irritated some of the flight attendants and some of the pilots, but I, I did it anyway. And so finally, we're, we're in silence. We're driving on the, the bus ride home, and I just asked, as it was so quiet, I asked, does everyone still believe that all religions are equal? So Islam says you die, and you make the other person die for their God. But Christianity says God died for us. And that's, that's a huge difference. So here, Manasseh, he is living, not according to the scriptures, but away from them, and so what did he do? Well, notice he practiced witchcraft, he used divination, he practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums. In each instance, whether it's the witchcraft, the divination, the sorcery, or the mediums, he is trying to get secret information. Now, what did we learn from Deuteronomy 29? Remember, Deuteronomy 28 says what? If you trust me, I'll give you a bumper crop. Doesn't believe that. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children forever. The things that he's not revealed, the secret things, belongs to the Lord alone. He doesn't believe that. So now he's trying to get secret information. He's not content with what the Lord has revealed. He's going to get the secret things. Dear ones, that's exactly the culture that you live in. They're not content with the word of God. When things go really bad, they have a sneaking suspicion this is true, but they're not going to live that way. They're not going to live cataphatically according to the scriptures. They're going to live apophatically away from them. And they're going to be engaged in divination. That's the culture that we live in. Let me give you an example. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Galatians 5, 19 through 20. And the reason I want you to turn to Galatians 5, 19 through 20 is I want you to see that under the new covenant, this sorcery trying to get secret information is also prohibited. In other words, someone could not make the argument well, sorcery was a problem under the Old Covenant, but under the New Covenant, there's not a mention of it, therefore we're free to do it. Well, that's not true. Galatians five nineteen through 20. Here is a list of the deeds of the flesh. In fact, you know what? I just realized I didn't put it on my, I just wrote the verse down. Could somebody read that for me? Um, thanks, Larry. Oh, thanks, Carly. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, starting with uh,
1: starting with 19. Yes. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, it's just a short list, disputes, <laughs> dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will
0: not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow, amen, well thank you. Larry, is it in verse 20 that the sorcery is actually mentioned? I think it's verse 20 if I remember. Yes. Does everyone see the term sorcery there? And I don't know if you're note takers. Exactly, Bob is right. The term is pharmakia Uh, in the Greek, which is where we get our term for pharmacy. And the reason I wanted to highlight that is what happened, especially in the time of the Old Testament, is many people would use drugs to induce themselves into an altered state of consciousness. And the idea is then they could contact the spirit realm. Well, that's exactly what the left was doing in the 1960s. Now, how do I know that? Well, Timothy Leary says as much. Timothy Leary lived from 1920 to 1996. And I want to cite to him and how I think really his views took hold in the 1960s and still influence America today. Listen to what Timothy Leary said regarding drugs and the design of drugs. He said, quote, a psychedelic experience is a journey to new realms of consciousness. The scope and content of the experience is limitless, but its characteristic features are the transcendence of verbal concepts of space-time dimensions and the ego for identity. Such experiences of enlarged consciousness can occur in a variety of ways, sensory deprivation, yoga exercises, disciplined meditation, religious or ascetic practices, or just simply spontaneously. Most recently, they have become available to anyone through the ingestion of psychedelic drugs, such as LSD. And then he goes on to talk about more things like that. And then he says, if one takes these, It opens the mind, frees the nervous system of its ordinary pattern and structures. In other words, it gets you away from knowing things cognitively, like the scriptures, and it makes you empty your mind so you can contact directly the spiritual realm and you can get the secret things. Exactly. That's exactly right. So that's what was going on in Manasseh's day. It's still going on our day. Nothing is new under the sun, it's just the same sin gets regurgitated, living by secret things rather than the Scriptures. Yes, Brian. Our own government did LSD testing on military personnel. Wow, wow. Right? They didn't test on you though. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That explains a lot of things. yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you. You. Uh, there was. Uh, there's these documentaries out there where you can see where the, the, uh, 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 the army and uh, our government, they, they would actually take people and they would,
0: uh, I don't know, they thought that they would get some advantage or something. Yeah, like a in, super in soldier yeah, right. of some kind, yeah, so kind of immune to fear and those types of things, yeah. I, I, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. But right, what we have to learn, I think, from all of this is that what God has designed, as human beings in his image, is that you and I are to know him cognitively. Meditation is never, I think um, Bob has pointed this out many times, I think Steve, you're pointing this out a couple Wednesdays ago, Mark Amundsen was as well, that when we meditate or we read about David meditating in the scriptures day and night on the, on the law of the Lord, it's not about emptying your mind of cognitive reason, it's about reasoning through the scriptures. So the meditation now, if you go to like a seminary where they're teaching yoga and Lectio Divina and these types of things, they want you to empty your mind. That's not meditation. Meditation is about thinking about what the scriptures really say. And so that's what we have to stay with. So you and I want to be those who are governed by the scriptures. And oh, again, you know what? I had Galatians 5, 19 through 20 on my screen there, Larry, and I forgot that I had it on there. So don't I feel like a dope? But anyway, uh, there's the term sorcery, but thank you for reading it. And the term sorcery there is pharmakeia. That's the term pharmakeia. So always keep that in your mind, that yes, the new covenant prohibits sorcery. It's a deed of the flesh. So It's not simply an old covenant uh, prohibition. It's new covenant as well. Now, you and I, therefore, are to live by faith and not by sight. Now, the category I want to build here is very important because sometimes when people think about living by faith rather than living by sight they think we as Christians mean by that that we don't have any evidence for what we believe so what I want you to realize is that's not what we are saying it's not what the Bible is calling us to to live by faith means you live according to the evidence given to you in the scriptures To live by sight is to live by anything else. It could be divination, uh, sorcery, it could be your own desires, it could be someone else's religion, it could be anything. But to live by faith means not a blind leap of faith where you jump into the darkness and you have no evidence for what you believe, but rather to live by faith means you believe in the promises that were revealed in scriptures. And based on the evidence given to you in the scriptures that are sufficient, you know these things are true. Now, what evidence do we have in the scriptures? Well, predictive prophecy. It's it's absolutely a game changer. The only religion, I hate to use that term because I don't think we have a religion, but to use the secular world's language, it's the only religion on the planet that has predictive prophecy that works. It's the only one. And it's blazingly amazing. Remember, I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, was it last week? 333 historically verifiable prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first advent. The odds of fulfilling just eight of them is one in 100 quadrillion. Anybody ever see the movie Dumb and Dumber? (laughs) I I hate to admit that I've seen this, but you remember that scene where he says, what do you think the chances you might want to go out with me? Remember? And she says, well, maybe one in a million. He says, well, you're saying there's a chance, you know? That's kind of what I think about when I said uh, one in 100 quadrillion. I mean, can you see the atheists, you know, sitting there thinking, well, you're saying there's a chance. There's no chance. There's no chance that any human being could fulfill those things. Lottery ticket. Yeah, yeah, lottery ticket, exactly. It exceeds that, right? Very good point. So, dear ones, we're living by evidence. That's the point. It's not a blind leap of faith. Now, Bob... I wanted you to jump in on this because Bob had written a book that was very important about the emerging church. And in some sense, the emerging church borrowed a concept from something called Neo-Orthodoxy. Bob rightly, we were talking about this earlier, and they are different, but one thing that unified the Neo-Orthodox church in the 20th century that devastated Germany and the emerging church that devastated America, in my opinion, is the idea that you can't know the scriptures. And therefore, all you're left with is a blind leap of faith. And why don't you, could you explain to us the idea of neo-orthodoxy? Yeah, neo-orthodoxy
2: arose after the Enlightenment rationalism, and the idea was science is going to overturn the Bible. Yes. And then we're going to lose our Christian religion, which, by the way, that's not exactly what happened. Right, right. Science is not you know, properly understood as not opposed to the evidence in the Bible. But thinking that would happen, and for whatever other reasons, they came up with this idea that all language about God is equivocation. Yes, That's the ground of this. And so therefore, if we say that a, a, a person is loving, then we only know persons. That's our realm. That's our yes. uh, state of being. But to say God is loving or God is something, God is so other. All of our language about God is equivocation. He's in some other you know, transcendent category beyond anything we're talking about. So what we do in order to save Christianity and the creeds yeah. and the liturgies is that we say the words and by a blind leap of faith, assume this is meaningful in some way. Yes. And that's what we have. Now, what, you, what do you have in the real world is really making um, theology more a subset of philosophy. Yes. As they did in, in Germany. So that was neo-Orthodox. You liberalism in America, some of that came here in the intelligentsia. But on the scene of history, it was more like the social gospel. Yes. And that's what I grew up with. Yeah. We can't know if there's, we know people can't walk on water. Jesus couldn't, none of these miracles could have happened. And so modern science tells us that doesn't happen. And so you have uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. Yeah. So what is our religion about? Interesting, you mentioned LSD. Yes. When I was 16, um... And I went to church camp. I drove there because I could drive at 16. And it was this United Methodist. They had groups called LSD groups. But it was not taking LSD. Let's start digging. It was acrostic. (laughs) But what we were digging was in nothing. How do you feel about that? And what about this? And and so then I went to, I told the story before. I went to the Bible class. Waited till it was all over talked to this older gentleman who was the teacher And asked him about my concerns that what I'm studying science would Tell us that miracles don't happen. Yeah, well, he wasn't neo-orthodox. Wow. He was just flat-out liberal, right? Right? And he said "Um, The the good Lord understands uh, These stories in the Bible are there to inspire us to be better people so the whole point was in a social sense, being good and nice. Right. Because that's a good way to be. Yeah. And then we can sit and talk about that. They weren't so sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. But that was just maybe pamby liberalism. Right. So in the intelligentsia, you have the blind leap, the neo-orthodoxy. In the scene of history in rural Iowa, you got to be nice because it's good to be nice. Right. And so on. <laughs> there's no hell. There's no blood atonement and all that. Yeah. Well then here comes Emergent. Yep. Emergent's a whole different thing. It's a version of version of Eastern religion philosophically wed to some Christian ideas. And the idea of emergent is called panentheism. So that's the total opposite of the Neo Orthodox. Yeah. God is so other that whatever we say about him is meaningless. So preserve our creeds and our councils and our Christian liturgy and just do it. And knowing that we're just talking things that may not apply to God. Emergent is Eastern. God is in everything. God is part of the whole. And because of God's infusion into the all, things are emerging into a better reality, mm. and they took a hold of the Hegelian synthesis right. to uh, try to prove that philosophically. So now emergent isn't its liberal in the same things they affirm. The emergent church would affirm homosexual marriage, things like that. But they're saying everything is evolving into some oneness with God without right. future judgment. That's right. So, Because the Traditional liberalism will be nice because we ought to was dying. Yeah, there was no compelling reason to do it. That's right. So There all of these really go back to what you're talking about the garden. Yes Now Eric and I just saw something my son-in-law said she be this video. It's amazing i I made an audio out of that by the way, let yeah. me bring it There's a Presbyterian pastrix. That's what she calls herself who is saying that God literally
0: lied to Eve in the garden.
2: Yep, yeah. Eric
0: saw it. As yeah, well. it's, unbl- it's the worst. It's the worst. Heri- the worst teaching I've ever seen in my yeah. life. And so
2: I have that. I, I captured the audio portion and equalized it and stuff. I could share
0: some of it. And she claimed Satan told the truth.
2: Yeah, Satan told the truth. God lied. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the lie is saying God's withholding something from you. Yes the secret things are what you really need. Right, right. Okay? And so God's withholding, and he knows things you don't know, and it's going to be beneficial. Well, there's actual pastors saying that. And so it's beneficial to eat, you know, disobey and gain the secret knowledge. Right, right. And it's just destruction. Now, as we've said before, and thank you so much, Eric, for laying all this out for us. Um, The way you combat this first of all, understand what it is and what's wrong with it, but more importantly, what's what Eric is teaching here. Teach the truth as it is, yeah. as is revealed, Amen. with full boldness, knowing that God keeps his promises, God has spoken, human language is valid, it's the only way humans communicate, God ordained language, clarity is good, ambiguity is bad, yeah. and <laughs> don 't believe the lie, speak the truth, knowing that God will use it. We were talking about that the truth versus the lie amen that 'd be a good reason to share part of that audio yes, I think you should okay um and and don 't get intimidated yes that 's huge right there yeah, bob don 't get intimidated don 't think well, you know my kids aren 't going to like this. We don't worry about what the kids like we worry about what the Bible says amen amen and um, That's between them and God if they grow up and want to
0: Live some other way then they'll pay the consequence, but we can't control somebody else. Thank you Bob You know, it's interesting you mentioned intimidation. I think that that's what happened to Soren Kierkegaard Soren Kierkegaard, Bob mentioned that you had this enlightenment, and the enlightenment, the fear was, the intimidation was that science and reason was gonna show our Bibles to be false. And so what Soren Kierkegaard does is he's really, in my opinion, one of the first of the neo-orthodox movement. He says, well, he's gonna preemptively protect the Bible from being proven, or I should say disproven. And so he starts this idea that, well, it's not that you can tell if this is true or not, but we just take this blind leap of faith. And so to escape the battle of whether it's true or not true, you just pretend that no one can really know. And so you have to have what's called an existential experience. So does everyone know what an existential, it just means a real experience, an experience from God. So what the New Orthodox claimed is that the word of God isn't the word of God, until you have this existential experience by the spirit, and then it becomes the word of God. So think of this analogy. This is the analogy I gave when I was refuting Neo-Orthodoxy with a professor who was Neo-Orthodox at Bethel. And I said, "Let's." and this actually happened to me. I was at Anoka Airport. I knew a guy who owned an old World War II aircraft, and he also had a Ferrari. And he asked me, he said, I was 16 years old, just had my driver's license. He asked me if I wanted to drive this Ferrari. I forget what version it was. It wasn't the one that Magnum P.I. drove. It was a little bit even more expensive than that. But at the time, I was 16, I had not yet driven a stick shift. I learned about it a couple months later. I wish I had known then. But I didn't know how to drive it. And so the analogy I made in this theology class years later in my 30s, as I asked the person, does the Ferrari cease to be a Ferrari because I can't drive it? Because a 16-year-old doesn't know how to drive a stick shift, does it cease to be a Ferrari? No, I think it's still the Ferrari. And so even if I can't understand the Word of God, it's still the Word of God. If I'm the sinner who can't understand it, it's not the fault of the Scriptures, it's my fault. And so the point is, what I'm reacting against and what Bob has reacted against is what we should have done instead of become neo-Orthodox like Kierkegaard and say, well, who can really know? We'll take a blind leap of faith, is we should take the bull by the horns and say, you know what, science and all of the evidence that you see in the world actually validates and corroborates the scriptures, it doesn't refute it. And that's exactly what we did as fundamentalist Christians in the 20th century, men like Norman Geisler. Norman Geisler was an expert in taking the data of the world and saying, yes, our scriptures, all of this validates it. So the evidence is on our side. That's what we should be doing. Instead of becoming postmodern, saying, who can know? I have to protect my Bible. We should say, oh, no, we can know. And we can engage. Anytime the archaeologists dig, it actually validates the scriptures, it doesn't attack it. That's what we should know. What's that, Scott? Exactly, The word of God is our protection. So my point in saying that is before I show you this, what I'm claiming is to live by faith, not by sight, doesn't mean that we jettison our reasoning and we have no reason to believe. We just take a blind leap of faith. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Bob is saying. It's not what the scriptures are saying. We live by faith means we live by the evidence found in the scriptures and we have a lot of it. We're going to live by that rather than by sight in the things of this world. We don't yet see the kingdom. We don't see Jesus reigning from Jerusalem. We don't see the nations flowing up to worship him, as it says in Zechariah 14, 16 through 17. But we know, based on the evidence from the scriptures, it's going to happen. Why? Because all of the first Advent prophecies were fulfilled. The second Advent prophecies are going to be fulfilled. So that's the idea of living by faith, not by sight. So for example, oops, before I put this up, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Corinthians four, sixteen through 18. What I want to do is show you how often this really is in the scriptures in the New Testament by giving you some examples. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Steve. Yes, go ahead.
1: Um, I was studying in Psalm 119 and oh, yes. um, in there On verse 100, it talks about that I have more understanding than the elders. Yes. This this is not a pious sort of thing, you know, to be, you know, gloating. Talking about obeying your precepts, and the elders are aged men. Yes. And so, basically, it occurred to me that God's word gives more wisdom than a lifetime of earthly experience. Well said. It's just...
0: So it's kind of well I, said. Not that
1: you need me to support what you're saying, but we
0: have it, we have it right here, also. So amen, Steve. And Steve, look at um, just 105, 119, 105 on there on the psalm. It goes to talk about the word is light, correct? The word is a lamp. Is it 105? There you go. Yeah, so it ties in very nicely to what you're saying, Steve. And yes. Um, you know, the old saying i like to kind of quote is oftentimes people say wisdom comes with age, but sometimes age comes alone, right? And uh, the idea is that what ultimately gives us wisdom is scripture, right? So you can have a young man equipped with the scriptures who has beyond his years like Timothy, or you can have someone who's, you know, 90 years old and they've never learned the scriptures, they lived as an atheist or what have you, and they're a fool all their life. And so you're right, it's the scripture's that ultimately give us the wisdom. Amen. And so that's what we're called to hear. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, notice here what Paul says. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer man, excuse me, although our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction, uh, by the way, stop there. I think the term affliction there, is it philipsis, Bob? Do you have your... I
2: have your, yes." Yeah, philipsis.
0: So thalipsis, does everyone see that thalipsis? That's tribulation. It can be rendered tribulation or affliction. So the church age is the time in which the Christian experiences thalipsis. But what happens in the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, is there's a reversal, we're removed, and affliction comes upon the unregenerate. Okay, but now he says, hey, we're gonna experience this affliction. Notice how he calls it light. And why? Because notice the contrast. This light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Stop there. The idea is that the promise of the kingdom, the resurrection, the glories of reigning with Christ from a restored Israel where we reign and rule over the nations, that is so far greater than the momentary light affliction that it can't even be compared. And by the way, The Apostle Paul, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he saw the third heaven. He saw the very paradiso, the very paradise of God. So he knew what he was talking about. He saw the great promises. Notice verse 18. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, what's the distinction between the things that are seen And the things that are not seen. Because if you misread this and you think, well, the things that are seen are the things that are real, tangible evidence, but the things that are not seen is this blind leap of faith, you're misreading Paul. That's not what he's referring to. What he means by the things which are seen are the circumstances only that we perceive in this world. We're oftentimes the people of God or the downtrodden. We go through the affliction. Our ideas are poo-pooed while the pagans are accepted. We're not the power brokers of our day. Remember, narrow is the path that leads to salvation. Few find it. Wide is the path that leads to eternal life and many enter in through it. So the vast majority of people who are going to rule the politic of the day are the unregenerate. What I'm claiming is that the things which are seen are the circumstances of this life. And if you don't believe the promises of God in the scriptures, you're living by what's seen. But the things not seen doesn't mean, again, a blind leap of faith. It means trusting in what God has revealed through the scriptures based on the evidence of the scriptures. That's the idea. And so if we're going to be people who live by what is seen, we we live by the circumstances of this world, and we don't live by the promises of the scriptures. That's what Paul is referring to there. So again, let's go to cataphatic versus apophatic. If you're going to live by what is seen, by the circumstances, you're apophatic, you're going away from the scriptures. You say, I don't trust that. I'm going to live by my circumstances. Everything's dark, everything's dreary, everything's bad. I'm going to try to get all I can here and now. But if you live according to the scriptures, cataphatic and the promises of God, you realize the best is yet to come. You're living for the promises. You're living for Christ and his kingdom. That's the idea. And so this continues on later in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Notice he says, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Notice in blue, he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body And to be at home with the Lord. Verse 8, of course, is very important because it talks about how the Christian, when we die, our body may go into the ground, but our soul goes to be with the Lord. Okay, that's 2 Corinthians 5.8. But notice in verse 7, notice he says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Again, the faith that you see in blue isn't a blind leap of faith where we have no evidence. It's a faith where you and I believe according to, to the evidence found in the scriptures, we believe God's promises. So what we do is we rationally say, well, wait a minute. In Micah 5, two, it said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, it says he'd be pierced 1,700 years. Psalm 22 is written about 1,000 B.C. Isaiah 53 is written about 700 B.C. But yet it explained exactly how the Messiah was to die. Uh, Zachariah chapter 11 is at verse 13. Messiah is going to be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. He was. Psalm 69, he's going to be given gall and vinegar to drink. And you start looking at the prophecies. That's what brought me to faith. It was the evidence. I couldn't deny the evidence. I was reading Matthew and I just, I couldn't believe that these prophecies were there. And I asked myself, why wasn't I ever told these things? But brothers and sisters, you and I are living, if we believe the promises of God in the scriptures based on evidence, that's what it means to walk by faith. You live your life like that. You walk it out. That's what Solomon is teaching the the young man, his son, in Proverbs 6. You live by the evidence in the scriptures, not by sight. If you live by sight, the harlot or the other woman may look pretty good. And in the the bleakness of life, if you don't believe the promises of God and you think, well, I'm going to get all I can here and now, that's where we sin. And that's why, Bob, is for how many years you've been teaching, Bob, believe the promises of God. If we believe the promises of God, we walk by faith, not by sight. We live for the king and the kingdom, not the sin that so easily entangles us. Yes, Levon. Um, I'm just thinking of when Jesus spoke to the um, woman at the well I think it was her. Yes. And he says, um, we must worship God in spirit and in truth. Amen. And must is, means divine necessity. That's what I yes. told us. Amen. And so in spirit, does that coincide with what you're saying? Uh, you worship from your heart, not with absolutely physical icons and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, in spirit and in truth. So, in spirit would be according to the spirit, in the sphere of the spirit. The spirit always testifies of Christ, right, in the book of John. And so, the idea of worshiping in spirit and truth, if we worship in the sphere of the spirit, it's according to what God has ordained, not according to what we've decided. And so, Again, what Jesus was revealing is that ultimately the battle isn't between Gerizim. Remember, she, the Samaritan woman says, hey, we should worship in Gerizim. You guys say it's in Jerusalem. Jesus is saying it's actually here. In other words, it's it Jesus. Jesus is saying that to her, so it's me. So what Jesus is showing is that true worship is of Christ. You come to the Messiah, then you have a right relationship. Absolutely. So it's based on that truth. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Good good point. And yeah, that's all part of living by faith, not by sight. Yes, yeah, Steve. I've
1: been I've been studying the promises of God and I, I thought to myself recently, self? How many more do I have to go? And there's over eight thousand eight hundred promises. I will be a hundred and thirty five years old when I finish. <laughs> <laughs> these are not, I mean... Yes, they amen. They are
0: so amazing, the promises of God. Well said, yes. Thank you for doing so, too, by the way. Yes, Bob.
2: If you think about this, these categories, yeah. you can see why Abram slash Abraham yeah. is given so much uh, discussion about his faith yes. in the book of Hebrews. Because when Yahweh appeared to Abram in early of the KLDs, yeah. and then there are other appearances... He's giving promises. He's giving to Abram promises yeah. that are distant future. Right. And he has no land. Yeah. He has no, he's asked to leave to a place he later have an inheritance, his descendants. Yes. He had, I think he had a burial place for his wife. And that was right, there. the cave of MacPella, that's all he yeah. had. Yeah, and so if you think about it, that's why Abram is so, now that was objective. There's a literal appearance yes. of Yahweh. Yes. It wasn't Abram thinking in his mind, I think I'll start a new religion. Right. <laughs> right. God did it. Yes. And so we have so much more to go on because we have everything already fulfilled up through the first advent. Yes. But a- Abram believed God. Amen. As accounted to him for righteousness.
0: Well said. Think about, um, by the way, a, a very good point, Bob. You know, it's interesting in that Genesis 15, it says Yahweh brought Abram outside. Remember, he had him count the stars. Bob and I believe that that's a theophany. That's probably the second person of the Trinity. So it's a pre-incarnate Christ. Remember, Jesus says in John 8:56 that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And what I think was going on is that as the pre-incarnate Christ brings him out and gives him the promises, what does Abraham do in Genesis 15, 6? He believes. So so catch on to this, how deep this is. Do you remember right after that, though, Abraham asked the question, how do I know that I'll receive the promises? So he believes, and he's justified. Remember, it says that it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he's justified at that point, and yet right away, like John the Baptist had some doubt, He has some questions, (laughs) right? How is this all going to work out? How do I know? Well, that's when they cut the covenant. Now, who cuts the covenant? Well, Abraham does the cutting, but God does the walking, and Abraham's asleep, right? But isn't it interesting that all of the animals that are cut end up being the animals used in the sacrificial system in the Mosaic covenant 400 years later? Why is that important? Because the faith came before... And then the cutting of the animals when he asks, How should I know? How do I know? Then the cutting of the animals. So think of it this way every time the Israelite, whether it be male or female, is in Israel during the Mosaic covenant, and they're putting the goat in the offering plate, so to speak, you know what I'm saying? They're sacrificing their animal, whatever it may be. What they're really doing is they're saying, How do I know? How do I know? And they're, they're partaking in this promise that was given to Abraham. So my point is this. The Israelite who was saved was by faith alone. When they put the goat in the offering plate, they're trusting the atonement comes from, from Yahweh. One day he's going to provide, he's going to provide, he's going to provide, he's going to provide. And so just as Abraham, the cutting of the animals didn't justify him, he was saved prior by faith. The Israelite 400 years later isn't justified by the animal but by the prior faith. You give the animal in faith, you're justified. You give the animal without any faith, you're not justified. Was Cain, didn't Cain do some sacrificing? But it wasn't in faith, was it? He was rejected. Why in Isaiah chapter 1 can God tell the Israelites, take your sacrifices that I've ordained and commanded you to give, and I, if I could paraphrase the whole chapter, he says, stick it in your ear. I won't listen to it. I won't, I won't accept it. I won't take your festivals. I won't take your sacrifices. Well, he's the one who commanded it. Why could he say that? Because they weren't doing it in faith. It's by faith. That's how You and I, when we do the Lord's Supper, We don't say, hey, I'm going to be justified. After all, I took the wafer and I took the cup. No, we do it in faith. If you don't have faith in the promises of God and Jesus Christ in the gospel, as it were, you can't be justified. So think of those animals that were sacrificed in Abraham's day, in Genesis chapter 15, as a foreshadowing of the Mosaic covenant sacrifices. And the question, how do I know? And they kept doing it, as it says in Colossians 2.16 that they were just a foreshadowing, but the substance was Christ. That was the whole point of it. Yes, Carly. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. Uh,
2: no, no, I, I don't want to interrupt. Nancy. It's just a little PS, not that further validation is needed at all, but ICR, oh. oh. How about this? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, the Institute for Creation Research this weekend, a free link. And they are having an archaeological seminar. Dr. Randall Price is going to be part of it. And it's, it's just going to validate further the people, places, events that Amen. occurred biblically, and the findings that are continually ongoing that support and substantiate. The, the,
0: that's wonderful. And that's Dr. Randall Price. Yeah, I like him. He does a wonderful job. He's actually some very good books about how we got our canon of scripture He's excellent. So thank you for pointing that out. Dr. Randall Price. And when is that again, Nancy? Um, it starts Friday evening and okay. Saturday. It's really anybody in creation research. Excellent. Very good. Thank you for that. Very good. Oh, I'm sorry, somebody else? Oh, yes. we got to get both Nancys in, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. You know, good. it's interesting because when you talk about Abraham cutting the promise and doing that by faith alone, I find it just so interesting that they didn't have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament like we have and the prophets had in the, in the New Testament. And I get stuck on that a little bit. If you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So it's not that the Holy Spirit wasn't present. Um, remember in the book of Numbers, the great promise is that the Spirit will one day come. So remember there was that day where they had the, the Spirit came upon all of the elders that that were helping Moses, the 70, and there was that Nedab and Eldad, or Medad and Eldad I think were their names. Well, they kept prophesying and they didn't make it to the tent of meeting. Well, Joshua, it says the son of Nun was jealous for Moses' sake. Why? Because those men were prophesying. And so Moses responds to Joshua, he says, are you jealous for my sake? And I think the implication that from Joshua's perspective is how dare these men prophesy when you alone speak for God, Moses. But it was a unique day. In fact, after it says they prophesied, the Bible's very clear in the book of Numbers. It says they did not do it again. So it it upholds the fact that Moses was unique. But on that one day, these men were given the spirit and they prophesied. And you remember what Moses says to Joshua. He says, oh, that all of God's people would one day prophesy. And so what that is a foreshadowing of is the time in which God would pour out his spirit, not just on Moses and the elders, but one day on all of God's people. And so it would be um, really what Bob has been teaching us through the, the priesthood of every believer. Um, it's not going to be just on Jew, it's also Gentile. Now, that doesn't mean universally every single person without exception, but universally all people without distinction, meaning it's not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile too. Jew and Gentile, male and female, um, the lowliest of the saint to the the highest of the saint, however you would quantify that. It's for all of God's people. And so that's the distinction that I see. Uh, Remember, Joel chapter 2. I believe Joel was written around the time of Athaliah, this wicked uh, queen that ended up bringing the people into divination. I think that was around 835 B.C. So I kind of take a minority position on the book of Joel. I think that was written in the 9th century B.C., But that's where you see in Joel 2.31 the promise that God would one day pour out his spirit on all mankind. I think actually that's uh, Joel 2.28. You can read about it in Joel 2.28 through uh, 31 right in there. So he would pour out his spirit on all mankind. And so notice the idea that he would pour it out. And so that's the image that he would pour it out like water. And so that's this idea then that you see in John 3.5 that unless you're born of water and spirit you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Um, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five. I will sprinkle you clean and give you a new spirit, a new heart. So the idea of the spirit and the water, the imagery of the spirit is the water. So, and again, why? Because it's poured out on all, Jew and Gentile, great and small, male, female, all people without distinction, not every human being, but all people without distinction. Yeah, does that help? Yeah, so not just on Moses, it's gonna be, on all of God's people. Yeah, very good question. Yeah, so what I want you to see here in the remaining minutes is that walking by faith means we believe cognitively in the scriptures. It doesn't mean we take an empty leap and say, I have no reason to believe. I'm just going to believe anyway. No, that's not biblical. We believe based on the evidence found in the scriptures. Let me show you another passage. Notice here in Romans eight twenty-four through 25, Paul says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Remember the term hope? I learned this when I was in seminary. Uh, When I was an airline pilot, I had to memorize a lot of data. And so I always had to use little acrostics or acronyms, things like that. Well, I had to do the same thing with Greek. I had a lot going on. So the term hope is elpis. It's actually elpis if you say it the way the Greeks want you to say it. But it looked like elpis. And I knew that a lot of people hope that Elvis is alive, right? So remember, if you hope that Elvis is alive, I don't think anybody in here does. But um, Not that there was anything wrong with him, but my point is, that's what it reminded me. So the idea of hope, though, what, I'm, what I want you to think about is hope is really synonymous with saving faith, and yet it's future-oriented. It's oriented not just what Christ has done and is doing, but what he's going to do in the eschatological age, when he brings the rapture, the kingdom, etc. okay? Now, how can we say that? Well, notice he says, for in hope we've been, you have, or excuse me, we have been saved. Doesn't he say in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace we've been saved through faith? So you see that hope and faith are really synonymous. That's what I want you to see. So what does it mean to have faith then? Well, it's by faith that we're saved, again, trusting in the promises of God. But notice he contrasts that with what is seen, What is seen can be what you watch out the window. In other words, when you look at the news and you see Israel being attacked and yet God promises one day they're going to be restored, if you live by what is seen, you say, there's no promises. There's no promises. Um, When you see the unregenerate rule and harm people, and yet it says in Isaiah chapter 2 that one day the swords are going to be beaten, into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks, the, the choice that you have is you're going to live by faith, notice on the screen, or by circumstance. That's the idea. Okay. Now, living by what is seen can also take on living in a way where you try to get secret information by the occult. Um, think about this. This is the example I like to use in this passage. Think about in Exodus chapter 32. Do you remember there, Moses went up and the people could not see him? Their mediator went, they can't see him. Now remember, Moses is a foreshadowing in some sense of the greater mediator, Jesus. So the lesser mediator, Moses, goes up, he ascends, the people can't see him. What do they do? They build the golden calf. Why? Because they want to live by what's seen. They have to see something. They're not going to live by faith. Jesus, the greater mediator, ascended up. You and I can't see him. Are we going to build the golden calf Are we going to live by faith? That's the idea. Are you with me? So that's what Solomon is telling his kid. You're either going to live by the scriptures, which tells you that the proper place for sexual expression is between one man, one woman, and the woman has to be your wife. That's what he's saying. And if you're going to live by faith, notice in the blue, Then you're going to live according to the scriptures, but if you're going to live according to the circumstances and the morality of this age, you're going to live by sight, and you're going to be like the Israelites who built the golden calf and perish. It always boils down to, are you going to live by faith, or are you going to live by sight? Brothers and sisters, that's what Solomon is showing us, and it's very, very profound, and yet, I think, very simple. So praise be to God for that. So um, we're basically out of time. Let me close in prayer, but I want to thank everyone for the wonderful contribution. I know Bob thinks the same thing. We just so enjoy doing Sunday school and interacting with all of you and hearing uh, your ideas and your understanding of Scripture. It really is a thrill to us. And so I just want to thank you for being such a a group that love the Scriptures. Yeah, and clap for yourselves. Amen. Thank you so much. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together, looking at the scriptures. And I do pray for all of us here that we would persevere, that we'd be those who live by hope, not by what is seen in this world. I pray for perseverance. I pray that you'd give us the ability to live lives that are pleasing to you. I pray for Bob now as he teaches us on 1 Corinthians, Lord. Be with him. Give us ears to hear. Give us the ability to obey. Be with us now with our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.